Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Sergeant First Class Jared Monty. Monty was a forward observer serving in Afghanistan with the headquarters and headquarters troop, part of the 3rd Squadron, 71st Cav. That's rolled up under the 3rd Brigade Combat Team of the 10th Mountain Division. The timeline and action we're going to talk about are in June of 2006 in Nuristan, Afghanistan. Nuristan Province, Afghanistan. And there's a few things I want to dive into here to kind of help tell the story of, of Monty's actions here. So for starters is the type of person, the type of leader that we're, we're dealing with here, Jared Monty. There are stories that friends have told after his passing, a couple things that really stand out. One is military bases are still open during holiday season. You know, there's, there's still soldiers there on Christmas Day. Not everybody goes home and is able to spend that time with family. It might be... Um, Something as simple as it's too expensive to go see family, or, or maybe there's not family to go see. But but nonetheless, there's still soldiers there on post during every holiday. And there's soldiers that have to do certain jobs on those days as well. It doesn't just abandon. So you have guard you have guard posts that soldiers have to sit on. It might be pretty boring on Christmas Day or Thanksgiving Day. But those jobs are still done, usually reduced a little bit, but there's still somebody that has to do those. Nobody wants to do that. Monty was one of the guys that was known for taking those shifts from his soldiers. So he would sacrifice his holidays so his guys didn't have to sit in a boring guard post um, on Christmas Day, for instance. So you're starting to get a little taste of Jared Monty here. The other one, the story that I really liked that I came across was earlier in his career, he had a soldier whose family didn't have any furniture. They were just starting out and, and the kids were sitting and on the ground and having, having meals sitting on the ground. So Monty gave away all of his furniture to this soldier of his, so his family could use it. So Monty's roommate comes back and the furniture has gone. Um, he just get without thinking, gave it up for one of his guys. So pretty cool dude, right? So heck of a leader already. And that's who we're going to deal with as we get into, get into this story here. Now, 2006 in Afghanistan is a time in the war where, I think it's safe to say we haven't fully recognized the scope of the conflict. It's, you know, right after 2001, the Taliban fell and it was a matter of weeks. We, we got into that conflict thinking that we could be fighting for uh, months, potentially. Still, the goal was never eight. Of course, the goal was not 20 years that we're kind of on the brink of now. But we didn't think it would be as fast as it was. But with the special operations units on the ground working with the Northern Alliance, it was pretty quick that the formal Taliban resistance withered away. And it made sense from their perspective, why are they going to try to fight a conventional war against um, the United States with this, this overwhelming air power overhead, dropping bombs everywhere. So they kind of stepped into a new role, which at the time looked like defeat. But they would start to reassert themselves across the country. And it really took us a while, I'd say probably until 2000 eight or nine even, probably 2009, to recognize that we don't have a grip on the war in Afghanistan. It's not trending in the right direction. The Taliban are actually making headway and we're not. 
So 2006 is in that window where the Taliban are still rebuilding their forces. I would say that we don't have enough people in the country to recognize that. We've got about 20,000 troops across Afghanistan. And NATO is contributing still at the time as well. But 20,000 compared to the 100,000 we're going to have there in 2010, you just don't – it's no different than anywhere else, any other situation in in life. You're not seeing everything if you only have – if you don't see everything with 100,000, you sure as heck don't see everything with 20,000. That's 2006. Another major piece that's going to come into play during this story is the resources. One of the, well, I'm not going to say one of the reasons. There were a lot of reasons why we maybe didn't have the resources, the manpower in Afghanistan at this time. But in June of 2006, the, the time we're going to talk about Sergeant First Class Monty, the Iraq war, the sectarian violence in the Iraq war is really kicking off. And we are heading towards the surge in Iraq where we'd have over 130,000 troops there. With that support and with that really being the forefront of the news cycle and, and kind of being on the top of everyone's mind, the casualties in Iraq are stash, stacking up a lot faster than in Afghanistan. The resources go to Iraq then as well. So things like helicopters, like manpower, like drones, or things that may keep watch over soldiers kind of stuck out there alone and unafraid on dangerous missions. We're going to come back to that. Sergeant Monty's a forward observer. 13 Fox is the name of the MOS or the type of the military occupational specialty. So a forward observer is designed to be the eyes of the artillery, really indirect fires. So technically Monty could be calling in strikes, indirect strikes from anything, from naval gunfire if it was there. It's not something we're going to deal with in Afghanistan. Um, he can provide targeting data for um, for bombs through through the Air Force or for gun runs. Usually that has to, to track through a Air Force personnel, usually a JTAC, but he can at least provide targeting data for that. And he can call directly to gun lines of 105 and 155 millimeter howitzers miles away to call in strikes in support of his guys. That's his mission on 21 June 2006 to serve as the Ford Observer with a 16-man team that's going to move to not the top of a mountain, but they're going to move up a mountain to overwatch an operation in the valley below. Now, there's so many mountains in this part of Afghanistan and Nuristan Really what happens is the mountains are generally uninhabited because it's hard to get up there. And down at the valley floor is where the population lives. So the operation is going to be flushing Taliban, flushing Taliban out of some of these villages. Monty and 15 others are going to be positioned on, you know, kind of a, um, not the peak, but kind of a, a little smaller crest on the mountain to overwatch the valley in order to, have eyes on the whole battlefield and to be able to call in strikes as friendly forces potentially get engaged down in the valley. So they're going to try to get up a little higher, broader field of view. They're not likely going to be in direct fire range of the enemy. I mean, they're kilometers away. Really what they are, are the job of a forward observer, the eyes of the artillery um, back, back a few miles away, providing support to get to this location. Now, it's important that the location is not uh, known to the enemy, right? It doesn't do you any good to set up an observation point, and the enemy knows you're there for a couple of reasons. But in order to avoid that, they walk there. 
and it's a nasty walk up these mountains and it's, it's slow and it's heavy because they've got to carry all of their gear. They're carrying, they're not taking trucks. They're not taking helicopters. They're walking up a mountain with, you know, probably 70 to hundred pounds of gear each. It's slow. It's nasty. It's June. It's hot. So they get there, they get there and, and are likely not noticed by the enemy. So they sit in their position and remember they're doing this to support an operation on the ground, which means they have to do this before the operation kicks off. But something happens, it's outside their control. The operation's delayed. Now, that's not a big, big deal for the people that are going to be on the ground taking the operation or taking part in the operation, but Monty and his guys had to carry all of their supplies up there. So, you know, they haven't fired around. They have as much ammunition as they might need, but there's other things that they're going to start running low on. Water, that's going to be a big one. Maybe food. How about batteries for their radios? A Ford Observer is not very efficient if you can't talk to aircraft or a gun line. Batteries are heavy. And it's not, well, there's not really a good way to recharge a battery while you're out on a patrol. So they might need new batteries for their radios or their being up there is of, of no use at all. So as the mission gets kicked back and delayed a little bit, they call in a resupply. Now this is risky because a resupply helicopter coming in and dropping off these supplies will give away their position. It's, you can see it from across the valley and across other mountains. And if you're an enemy fighter, just keeping watch over this valley and you see a helicopter go land on a mountaintop, you know, something's up. They're not just doing that for practice. So the idea is there's going to be multiple aircraft coming in for different, a handful of different reasons. They're going to touch down in a lot of different places. That way, when the enemy sees five aircraft, six aircraft touching down in 12 locations, what are they going to do? Go look at every one of those? Probably not. They might know that something's up, but that's a little too much to tackle in a day or two. That doesn't happen, though. Unfortunately, it's one aircraft that comes in. would have been a pair of aircraft, but nonetheless, they make one touchdown at Monty's location. Now, on the positive side, they get their resupply. Good, needed. On the negative side, the enemy was watching. And the enemy just saw something's going on on that hilltop. And they make a move. As dusk approaches, 50 enemy fighters, Taliban fighters, mass for an attack on Monty's position and his men. And this is where the resources that we were talking about just a minute ago come into play. With unlimited resources... And which, you know, will make believe that unlimited resources exist. That team is not out there without somebody watching them because they can only see so far. If you can, why would you not have something in the air to watch the surrounding area and see as people are moving towards their position? It would be generally easy to see that from overhead if you were watching for it. You could have a predator or a reaper or an unarmed air, unarmed UAV, a shadow, or or maybe it's fighters hovering overhead. It doesn't matter. Anything that could watch some approaches to these guys if you have unlimited resources. But not only do we not have unlimited resources in 2006, but the bulk of those resources are going to Iraq. Um, so as 50 Taliban fighters mass for the attack on Monty's position, his guys have no idea. And the rest of the American forces don't know what's about to go down. They open fire from an elevated position. It's an elevated position because while Monty and his guys are on a hillside, they're not on the top of the mountain. They found what was a good OP for their vantage point, 
but there's technically still high ground above them. So the enemy is raining down RPG and machine gun fire, heavy volume of fire. 50 guys can shoot a lot of rounds pretty quickly. And, and right away, one American soldier is killed very quickly. And another is wounded as he's trying to make his way back to the American line. So on this hilltop, Monty and his guys spread out a little bit. It doesn't do a lot of good for 16 to be right on top of each other. So you kind of push out to watch, you know, certain avenues of approach, or maybe be able to see around, um, you know, the side of, of this approach, whatever it might be. But as the attack kicks off, the guys start to um, move back to a single more defensible position. As one of them is doing that, um, he is hit. And you see, I, I think I have his name here. Yeah, Private Brian Bradbury um, is hit and, and severely wounded and falls away from what is becoming this American defensive position that Monty and the rest of the guys are, are holding down. Now, the job of a forward observer, it's easy in this situation to pick up your rifle and start shooting. You're getting shot at. There's enemy nearby. In fact, they get within hand grenade range. They're very, very close. The Americans can hear the Taliban talking is how close they are. It's very, very tempting to pick up your rifle and start firing. And Monty does that on, on numerous occasions, but he's the forward observer where he can bring death and destruction to the battlefield is from, from his radio. He's the one who is most trained to bring in those rounds to kick back the enemy attack. He is the one with the link to the rest of the military, to the other units that can, can really drive this attack back because 50 against 16 is not looking good for the Americans on that hilltop. So staying calm, Monty starts to direct indirect fires, indirect fires, mortars, and artillery within danger close of their position. Danger close is going to be roughly speaking, we'll say within 200 meters. That's pretty close. Um, the actual danger close depends on the munition type. It's going to depend on the range. Um, for what he was firing, it would have probably been closer to 600 meters, but they've got guys within 50 meters of their position. So he's bringing those rounds in even closer. And danger close means that there is a high likelihood that those rounds could wound or kill friendly forces. To do that, to call in a mission like that, requires so much confidence in the data you're sending up. Because how easy is it to slip up one number? How easy is it to, to see a nine and write a six? How easy is it to do that when there's bullets flying overhead and RPGs landing next to you? Monty stays calm and directs some of this fire to start pushing back the enemy attack. But one of his guys is wounded and stuck out there away from friendly forces. His guys recognize the danger that Bradbury is in and that he's starting to slip. They're calling out to him. They're trying to get him to talk, trying to get him to engage so he can keep fighting, keep fighting for his life. He's not firing his weapon. Just, just stay alive, stay awake, wait till we can get to you. Monty has to make a move. One of the other soldiers mentions that he's going to go get him. And Monty says, no, 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 that's my guy. I'm going. Hands the radio off to another man because there's still going to be aircraft coming in and airstrikes and, and, and mortars and artillery firing. Somebody has to be on the receiving end to tell where those are landing. But Monty says, I got to get my guy. Twice he tries to make a move to him and gets pushed back by enemy fire. You got to think there's, there's a few positions that are 
a little bit of cover from the enemy fire. But between those two positions, there's more than two, but these are the two we're talking about. Between those two is, is open field, open ground. And it's not very far. But because all of the Americans are behind cover, as soon as somebody steps out from behind that cover, they become the target for everybody. So as soon as Monty shows his head and tries to make it to Bradbury, he becomes the target for 50 Taliban fighters. He tries this twice and gets pushed back. The third time, despite the hail of gunfire and without regard for his own safety, he stands up, sprints towards Bradbury. As he nears a soldier, he is hit and killed by enemy fire. Shortly after, moments after, some of the danger close strikes that he called up and began directing start to land. And in the next few minutes, the calls for fire, the last calls for fire that Sergeant First Class Jared Monty would make devastated the Taliban lines, killing over 20 of them and breaking up the attack, which allowed for the rest of his team to survive the fight. Now, as the fight starts to dissipate, there, there's a little bit more to this story. Um, let me say at this point that for that act, for running into the hail of gunfire to try to save his brother, Sergeant First Class Jared Monty would be awarded posthumously the Medal of Honor. But the day doesn't end for the soldiers on the ground. See, there's a medevac helicopter coming in, but they're on a hilltop. And there's no place for the bird to land. So they have to lower a basket down. And they do that. They lower a basket. They load up one of their wounded and pull him up via a cable and a hoist and take him out to safety. Or not take him out to safety. He's in the helicopter. They lower the second one down. There's a medic that comes down with the, with the, uh, the basket to help load up now um, Private Brian Bradbury. Remember the man that... Sergeant First Class Monty was going out to try to save. The battle has dissipated a bit, so the soldiers have gone out to collect their wounded and their dead. And now they are loading Bradbury into this basket, this a litter, attached to a cable to be pulled up to the helicopter hovering overhead. The medic steps on board as well. They start to take off. It's late now. It's night. Um, and in a tragic accident, that cable snaps as the helicopter is pulling away. And Bradbury and the medic fall to their death. The battle would cost the lives of four Americans with numerous others wounded. And to, to, to bring it back to Sergeant First Class Monty, um, it was his selfless act running out there into the hail of gunfire, which when you look at what are people awarded the Medal of Honor for? It's going above and beyond at risk of your own life. And nothing defines that more than running into a wall of gunfire because there's even the slightest chance that you could pull your wounded brother back to the safety of American lines. And for that act and given his life in the process, Sergeant First Class Jared Monty will be awarded the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. 
We'll see you next time.